Thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to you. When Diana told me months ago about her idea for today's women's topic, I was real excited. It was shortly after I said yes that the panic set in. Um, as many of you know, I like working behind the scenes. I don't like working up front. Um, I struggle to find the right words. I kind of have this love-hate relationship with words. I'm more geared towards numbers. And so it's a big joke in my family. Um, I frequently forget names. I'm really bad at remembering song lyrics or anything like that. Um, one evening during family worship, we were singing that song, Jesus Loves All the Little Children of the World. And um, I twisted it somehow and said, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and blue. <laughs> I still haven't lived that down. So I stand before you with some fear and trepidation, but my prayer is that God would use me in my weakness for his glory. As I approach the topic of Bible study, I think it's important to address why we should have a lifelong habit of Bible reading and Bible study. And I want to give you some practical suggestions on how to make this happen. I grew up in a Christian home, and reading the Bible was just normal. It was part of my routine. And I never seemed to struggle with it until I had several young children at home. All of a sudden, it was a struggle. And in the chaotic life that I was living, I let the um, priority of Bible reading slip. I was so busy. I was nursing babies, changing diapers, doing laundry, nursing babies, changing diapers, nursing babies, changing diapers. Um, I would never really stop to think about Bible study or think about God or meditate on his scripture. And I realized I had been doing this and it scared me. I had to stop. I think I only had a couple of children at that time. But um, I realized that I had to make a change. I had to prioritize my time in God's word. I had no idea that I would end up with seven children in my house. And I didn't realize that what I thought was so busy was just the tip of the iceberg. I want to start um, in one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. That's Hebrews 11. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I love the commentary it gives regarding the heroes of the faith. I think it gives insight into the motivation and the mindset that we need to have as we think about this topic of Bible study. I'm going to start in Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, is it, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The first key word we come across here is faith. Immediately, we see that in order to please God, we have to have faith. The author of Hebrews starts out in chapter 11, verse 1, as, def as to define faith for us. Um, he says that the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The ESV study notes describe this as a settled confidence of something in the future that will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. Let's notice the next section of that verse, the words draw near or to approach God. This means and implies to have a personal relationship with God. The author tells us that if we are going to have a personal relationship with God, we must first believe that he exists. In other words, 
we need to believe that God is God. He is who he says he is. The second part of that verse says that he will reward those who seek him. This is the part I really want you to think about. As we look at the topic of Bible study, I hope you're asking, how do I seek God? I think we seek God primarily through his word and by practicing the means of grace. Now, for those means, we are going to hear about from different speakers today. But when you think about spending time in God's word, do you believe that you will be rewarded as you seek him? Let me ask this in a different way. Do you believe that the time spent in God's word is profitable? I know in my life, if there's a really good sale, I'm totally in, especially if it's home decor. I feel that the money saved is worth my time. Okay, this is where the homeschool teacher in me is going to come out. Last year I taught economics, and I was amazed at the practical applications the subject offered. Economics is defined as the study of the use of scarce resources which have alternative uses. Again, let me repeat that definition. The study of the use of scarce resources which have alternative uses. So let's go all the way back into the Garden of Eden. The garden was a system of production and distribution of goods and services, but it was not an economy because everything was available in unlimited abundance. Part of the curse of the fall was the limiting of resources. Part of these limited resources was life or time itself. Scarcity means that we must make trade-offs. We look at the alternative ways of spending this resource and make decisions. Problems come when we consider only the immediate consequences, not the long-term effects of our choices. If we are going to carve out time in our day, we have to believe that Bible study is totally worth it because we are spending a scarce resource, time. If I'm spending time in God's word, what it means is I'm choosing not to spend time on something else. I often pray and ask the Lord to give me a heavenly perspective. Those of you who remember life before the web, how many of you remember life before the web? Yeah, there's only a few of us. <laughs> um, I think you would agree that life in this new technology-driven social media society has changed exponentially. As women living in the 21st century, there are so many distractions calling for our time and attention. So let's stop a minute and think about the implications. Living by faith means that we are acting on a reality that is not present. I'm intentionally making choices because I believe the outcome in the future is, will be rewarded over the present circumstances. Let me illustrate this by skipping down to verse 13. Now remember what's happened between verses 6 and 13. We're reminded of the lives of Abraham, Noah, and Sarah. Then the author in verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared for them a city. Did you pick up the word seek in this passage? They were seeking a homeland. It goes on to clarify that this was a better one, a heavenly one. What I want you to see from this passage is that they had a heavenly perspective. They were making choices in the present because they believed the result in the future would outweigh the present circumstances. The author gives you the inside scoop on why people made the choices they made. Their faith in the future promises of God directed their actions in the present. They had a spiritual ambition that drove the decisions and choices of their daily lives. I heard this said a different way recently, and that is behavior follows beliefs. Again, behavior follows beliefs. If we truly believe that the Bible is God's word and he will reward us if we seek him, then one of the outcomes is the intentional reading of God and study of God's word. Remember, I told you earlier, when I reached a point as a young mom, struggling with my quiet times, that I realized I had to make changes. This would only happen if I truly believed of God's promises of future grace. If I believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, then spending time in God's word is an investment in future grace. I needed to make my time in the word both intentional and purposeful. Several years ago with our Costco rewards coupon, we bought one of those little iRobots. You know the thing that goes around and sweeps your house for you? I love it. But the model we bought was not one of the expensive ones that actually keeps a floor plan. No, ours just bounces around different directions when it hits an obstacle. It's totally random and there's no cohesive me method to its madness. And that's how I realized as a young mom that I was approaching my Bible study. Perhaps some of you do that too. I picked up a book years ago by Jean Fleming called Feeding Your Soul. One of the impacts this book had on me is a realization that my quiet times or Bible reading study times had to be purposeful, intentional, but also flexible. I am sure that most of you know what most books recommend. Um, they counsel you to spend to set aside a specific time in the day, usually morning. They counsel us to choose a quiet place in your house, and it's generally good to keep the time and the place um, the same, and then have a systematic plan. Really, this is the best scenario when you're establishing the habit of Bible reading. However, I'm going to guess there's a few of you who are struggling to make that happen. I want to offer you some encouragement in your struggle. Let's remember what the scriptures say in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. When you consider the, how the saints in the Old Testament live, their interaction with scripture was not limited to a 20-minute routine in the morning. In fact, most of them didn't even have a copy of the scriptures. The scriptures and teachings, for the most part, were passed down orally. They were to live a lifestyle where the scriptures permeated their lives. With this in mind, I want to offer you a few suggestions. The first one, quiet time or Bible reading, Bible study can happen in a not-so-quiet house. That was a shocker. 
Well, I do agree that the perfect atmosphere is a quiet house, a comfy chair, and, of course, a cup of coffee, real good coffee. Um, I was realistic to know that that's not going to happen all the time. Be creative and think outside the box. I dare say only in the 21st century America would people expect to have the perfect conditions in order to have a quiet time. Remember, up until the printing press, the average person didn't even own a Bible. Think about how the people throughout the centuries lived. They didn't have their own rooms. They lived in conditions that we as Americans would consider it impossible to have a quiet time. You know, I don't think they were lazy boy recliners on, when the Israelites escaped from Egypt. Reading God's word is a commandment. Quiet time should be the icing on the cake, not a law on how to eat the cake. My second suggestion is, although morning is the best time for reading and Bible study, sometimes we believe the lie that it is the only time. Um, there were times in my life when I had to read the Bible late at night or when the kids were taking a nap. I think, all the, think often we are tempted to have an all or nothing attitude. That is, if we miss our Bible study or reading time in the morning, we write it off for the rest of the day. Don't fall into that trap. There are so many ways to be in the Word on busy days, even if it's grabbing a note card and meditating on scriptures as you run out the door. I find journaling helps my focus. When the noise level of my house, either literally or figuratively, is overwhelming, one of the methods I used for journaling um, for many years was, came from Fleming's book called The Four R's. Read, report, reflect, respond. Again, read, report, reflect, respond. Read. Choose a book to read, either a small portion or a verse. The length doesn't matter. Report. Write a brief synopsis of the passage. Record the facts. Summarize the content. Reflect. Consider the facts. What does it mean? What do you learn about God? What does God say about you? Are there any commands? And then finally, respond. That is, write a short prayer engaging and responding to the passage. Talk to God. Let your reflections inspire your prayer. Praise him for who he is or thank him for what he has done. Again, this simple method of read, report, reflect, respond really helped me focus my mind in my sometimes chaotic household. My fourth suggestion is to use dead time to get into God's word. Driving can be a perfect time for your devotions. I use my ESV app to read to me all the time. In the car, at home, when I'm doing the dishes, and sometimes when I'm just having a difficulty time concentrating. We live in the age of technology. Not all is good, but use the good for his glory. Read for depth and breadth is my fifth suggestion. As Dave Mathis said in his book, Habits of Grace, let's look at the breadth of our reading. Now, the whole counsel of God needs to be read. I was often tempted to stay in my favorite books, the epistles or the psalms. I noticed that I avoided the harder books, such as the major or minor prophets or Leviticus. <laughs> um, I have two suggestions to help. The first idea is to use an app on your phone. I use one called the Reading Plan. There are different plans to choose from, and the app allows you to set it up in several ways. The plan I use is called the Horner Plan. It helps me by cycling through scripture categories. Each day has six chapters, 
Four are in the Old Testament and two are in the New Testament. On busy days, I may not read all six chapters, but it keeps me reading the whole Bible, not just my favorite parts. This also helps with reading in context. The other habit I have to keep track of my Bible reading um, is to put a date in, the, in my Bible at the end of the book when I finish it. Now, I do a lot of my reading digitally, so sometimes I forget to mark the date, but I have another reason for writing my Bible, which I will tell you about later. The second way you should read God's Word is for depth. There are many ways to do this. Now, please don't get me wrong. I think it's important to, do, to know the principles of hermeneutics, and I know some of you do original studies, and that is great. However, if you're stressed and you feel overwhelmed by even the thought of original study, there are so many good tools available out there today. I first became introduced to in-depth studies through pre precept studies. I've enjoyed a lot of different types of studies through the years. Um, recently, I've done some Jen Wilkins or Nancy Guthrie and others. But I want to spend my time sharing a method that I am currently using that I absolutely love. My daughter-in-law introduced me to the 1718 series. Um, this is a series of books. They have one for every book of the Bible. On one side, you handwrite the text. On the other side is open for you can write your own notes. Now, they do have some guided questions, but usually I just write my notes over those questions. So this is what I do, is I write the scripture out on one side. I write the scripture out on one side, and I go ahead and mark any key words, repeated phrases. Then I pair it with another book. I love the commentary series called God's Word for You. For example, this one is, well, actually, this one is Galatians for you. Um, this one was written for, by Timothy Keller. Um, I'm currently doing Acts, which is written by um, Al Mohler. Um, so what I do is I highlight in my commentary series, and I have a three-tier method for taking notes. Um, first, after I highlight in my commentary series, I um, lost my place just a minute. I pick the important notes out, and then I copy them into my journal. Um, I do make a note in my journal what books I'm using. I tend to use two or three books sometimes when I'm doing my Bible studies. Um, once I take notes and copy them in my journal, I transfer a few of those key notes into my Bible. And I use a journaling Bible to, uh, for the purpose of keeping track of those notes. Um, now, this method might not be for everyone. I hope I haven't confused you. But it's just the way that I learn. And you can look through my Bible and you kind of know which books I've studied. Because if I've studied the book, my Bible tends to look like this. It's a mass of colors and notes. I'm sure if we take a poll, there are many of you um, who study have different ways to stay in the Word. Your time in the Word will look different in different seasons of life. Your time in the Word may look different than the lady sitting next to you. But what is most important is not how you do it, but that you are having an intentional, purposeful time in the Word. The final area I want to address is having your heart engaged in God's Word. I know you've probably heard my husband say this phrase a lot, sin and righteousness is always a matter of the heart. 
We need to be careful as we approach the subject of Bible reading that we do so with the intention of engaging the heart and not with the mindset of gaining knowledge or legalistic lists that you check off. Remember, legalistic lists will either tempt you to pride if you keep them or keep you discouraged if you fail. I think often we emphasize the individual's initiative and effort. We can turn a duty into what should be a joy. Our investment in God's word is what gives us strength for fighting sin, endurance for running with Christ, wisdom in bearing fruit, and it keeps our eyes focused on heaven. We need to focus more on more, we need to focus on more than outward obedience when it comes to our time in the word. Isaiah addressed the issue of conformity in chapters 29 verse 13. And the Lord said, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus repeats this verse in Matthew and applies it to the Pharisees in Matthew 18. You see, Jesus is wanting more than just outward obedience. He wants our hearts. We can go through the motions of external confirmation, but see that our time and see our times in the word as a checklist. We may feel good about our discipline, such as getting up early and spending 45 minutes in the Word. But I think an important question to ask is, have we engaged the heart? Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We recognize the emphasis the Bible puts on the heart. But how does this apply when you're interacting with God's Word? I really struggled with this part as I wrestled my thoughts, tried to wrestle my thoughts into words as far as what engaging your heart means and how to communicate that. Here are some helpful ways to think of this. Cognitive, that's your knowing, your believing, your reasoning. Ask yourself, what do I learn about God? What do I learn about sin and about myself from these scriptures? Affections, these are my desires, my values, my feelings. Mark 12:30 says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength." This is engaging your affections and emotions when you are in God's word. What should I value? What should I love? What brings me sorrow? What sin should I cultivate sorrow over or grieve over? Third, volitional, meaning your will, your decisions, your actions. What commandments should I obey? What decisions should I make? What do the scriptures tell me to do in this situation, or perhaps not do? I understand that typically we don't separate thought, feeling, and choice, but what I'm intentionally trying to illustrate is that we need to purposefully engage and interact with scriptures. It helps with the process of turning head knowledge into heart knowledge. We do have to discipline ourselves for godliness, but not because he's standing over us in wrath, or because the work itself earns us points. No, these means of grace are God's provision for us. As we engage the heart with and interact with scriptures, the Holy Spirit finds the knowledge found in his word and gives us wisdom for our walk. Psalms 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We all have what we call formal theology, that is what we believe the Bible teaches. We also have what we call functional theology. That is what you actually believe. By that, I mean what our actions tell us we believe. Oftentimes, 
Our functional theology is seen most in the everyday tedious moments of life. When the kids are fighting, the dishwasher quits, and we have mountains of dirty dishes. Our child's procrastination all of a sudden becomes our crisis, where perhaps a coworker fails to do their job, and we have to stay late to fix it. With, our, with your heart engaged during your quiet times in the Word, you will be equipped to look at your surroundings and evaluate them biblically. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How does this look practically? For me, it means that sometimes after a hard night with issues with Mike's blood sugar, I can force myself to get up to have a quiet time so I can check it off the list. But then I may be impatient with my kids or make a snarky comment to my husband. Perhaps the wiser thing would have been to sleep in and set aside time later in the day to spend time in God's Word. Or perhaps you stay up later than you should, then don't get up in the morning on time, and you end up rushing through your Bible reading just to get it done. I have also sat down in my time in the Word and had, had a hard time focusing my thoughts. My thoughts were racing, and it was a struggle to focus. The psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. Sometimes it takes purposeful and intentional focus to still your heart before the Lord. I have times when I've struggled in all these ways, and honestly, sometimes I win the battle and sometimes I lose it. I think this is just part of living in a fallen world. It's just like every other battle. When you fail, you repent, ask forgiveness and grace, and then you get back up and try again. As women in the 21st century, our culture is changing at warp speed. I know of no other time in my life that it seems so critical to be in the scriptures. Remember, society now is calling evil good and good evil. I pray that I have challenged you today to first have an eternal perspective when it comes with time in the word. To read the God's word with to read God's word purposefully, intentionally reading for both breadth and depth, and then to read with a mindset of engaging your heart as you interact with his word. I want to conclude with the story of my family. My mom's family was really big into passing down an inheritance through the generations. I have a coin collection. You may have seen some of the coins displayed in my husband's office from my great aunt Edith. I brought this quilt to show you today. It was made by my great-great-grandmother. Um, it was made in 1905. Many of the patchwork fabrics are completely worn to threads. You can tell it's got a lot of use out of its lifetime. I have rings, dishes, land, you name it, from five generations back. But the most precious legacy that I have was the memory of my dad sitting in his chair every morning with his cup of coffee, reading his Bible. I mentioned several times today that I write in my Bible. I put names and dates by verses I've prayed for my children. I date the chapters that I've read. I highlight passages and make notes. To an outsider, it may look like a mess of colors and notes, but to me, I have a purpose for that. You see, when my grandkids or my great-grandkids find my Bibles in the stack of antiques, I want them to realize just by looking at my Bible how precious it was. 
It wasn't a Sunday Bible or an emergency Bible. No, it was a Bible that I lived my life in, grew in godliness, and claimed God's promises of future grace. In God's economy, spending our scarce resource of time by reading and studying God's word is a priceless investment in future grace. Thank you.